HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus, it's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chicago chef and cookbook author, Paul Kahn. In today's episode, we'll talk to Paul about his latest cookbook, Cooking for Good Times, his secrets to entertaining at home, and we'll hear Paul's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. One less frequently discussed aspect of all things Julia is that a lot of her work involved teaching people to entertain at home. She famously opined that you could easily serve 300 omelets in 20 minutes for an impromptu supper party in an episode of The French Chef. You can watch Julia make a liver omelet for her non-existent mother-in-law while doing math in her head on juliachildfoundation.org. Click on videos. 
beyond questionable ambitions, her goal was the same as our guest today, to encourage people to gather around the table over good food and drink and spend time together. Having had the good fortune of talking to Chicago's top chef Rick Bayless in our last episode, number 70, we're segueing to another Chicago star chef, Paul Kahn. Paul is the executive chef of more than 10 restaurants and bars, plus a butcher shop and a bakery, all part of one-off hospitality group, which includes acclaimed Chicago restaurants like Blackbird, Avec, and The Publican. He's the author of Cheers to the Publican, which won an IACP Cookbook Award in 2018. He's won two James Beard Foundation Awards for Outstanding Chef in 2013 and Best Chef in 2004. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, another in our series on this fall's most notable cookbooks, entitled Cooking for Good Times, Super Delicious, Super Simple, written with his fellow chef de cuisine from Avec, Perry Hendricks, and Rachel Holtzman, who collaborated on his first book. And just as Julia was our entertaining muse, Paul's here today to help us get into a hosting mindset to tackle the holidays. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Uh, Pleasure to be here. We're glad you're here, too. So the book really strikes me as an effort that you were making to share the best times to kind of gather the best times your own life together and then share them with everyone else. Was that like the bigger picture goal than just sharing food and recipes? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think it's uh, as much about uh, entertaining philosophy as it is about uh, simple, delicious recipes. You know, I think that people um, get very ambitious and they, uh, they dive into a dinner or a dinner party or an event for friends. Uh, and they sort of uh, oftentimes lose track of uh, who they're with and why they're there, which is to have an incredible time to communicate and relate to friends and family and enjoy themselves. And so um, we try to set it up so that um, it's really similar to how a restaurant kitchen works. A lot of things are done ahead of time. Uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't take away from the deliciousness or the simplicity of the, the food that we're trying to present. Yeah, and I think that's a really Julia philosophy, that somehow there's this massive disconnect in society between admiration for great chefs and television personalities who do food and what you should be doing at home and this like kind of idea that everyone should be replicating a restaurant kitchen in their house when they're entertaining. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And I, I also think that... Um, you know, although there are so many incredibly talented chefs that do, you know, intricate, uh, fine cuisine at, at this at this point in my life, that's not really who I am or where I want to go. Um, I just want uh, soulful, delicious food that makes everyone happy. And, um, you know, if you have to get out a pair of tweezers or um, if you have to spend five minutes plating, uh, that, that, that becomes very difficult. And so uh, we set out to um, sort of emulate uh, in a lot of ways what we do at our second restaurant, Avec. Um, and one, one of the fortunate things about that is a lot of the food um, that we do at Avec uh, is served in the vessel that it's cooked in. It comes right out of a hot oven and it's plopped on the table. Maybe a garnish goes on top um, and, and away you go. It's uh, really simple. Um, you know, in, in, in the book, the first chapter, um, we call uh, things to eat while you're cooking. And again, the idea is that you, you've done so much work in advance, uh, not a huge amount, not a scary amount, uh, but you're in a really good place to just pop something in the oven or pull something out of the oven, you know, throw a couple things together. Uh, and while you're doing that, you know, we've, we've learned that people love to hang out in the kitchen. And so you open a couple of bottles of wine, you know, some bubbly or some rosé, and you, you hang out in the kitchen and you 
you throw some food together and you, you have an incredible party. And I, I, I know it sounds simple. It, it actually really is incredibly simple. Well, I also I love that the book starts that way too, because uh, you know, in in essence, it's a neat thing to just say what you just said, which is you know, food to eat while you're cooking, because you might get hungry. Nigella is always talking about snacking while she's eating, but I but I, what I really appreciated is this like bigger message that you're really sending again about a philosophy of entertaining. So like that phrase, food to eat while you're cooking, is very loaded. It's both about I think prepping in advance, but is isn't it also you're seeing like don't be the cook who's who's organized things in such a way that you're stuck in the kitchen while all your guests are having a good time, unless, of course, you have a very open plan house. Yeah, 100 percent. Um, you know, the the restaurant Avec itself um, sort of and, and I, I talk about it in the book. It came from uh, my first uh, experience uh, going to Europe. Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a long story, but in a nutshell, and I think it really relates to this style of entertaining um, in a nutshell, you know, my wife um, actually was in a pretty horrific uh, motorcycle accident in Europe before I met her, and she actually convalesced um, in the, the high Swiss Alps uh, and for, for a pretty long time and, and made these great lifelong friends. And so when it came time uh, for us to travel to Europe for the first time, um, we, we flew into Zurich. Our friend Verena picked us up in her car. She popped open a split of champagne for us to drink as we drove two hours to her little town up in the Alps. And when we got there... There was three feet of snow on the ground. Um, she lives in this beautiful 400-year-old farmhouse that sort of centers around a wood-burning hearth. Uh, and it is a very open floor plan. And so when we got there, we started to cook simple things and pop them in the oven and uh, pop bottles of wine from their wine cellar. And that lasted about 12 hours, in all honesty. And so this parade of uh, old friends that my wife had made that I had never met uh, kept showing up. And we kept cooking and we kept popping bottles of wine. And it was this you know, unforgettable entertaining experience that really shaped that restaurant and in a lot of ways uh, shaped the cookbook Cooking for Good Times. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I really love that description in the book. I mean, first of all, <laughs> you, 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 you've you shifted the whole um, landscape from France being the center of food and entertaining to Switzerland, which I think doesn't come up that much or doesn't come <laughs> yeah. up as a Chicago uh, parallel. So I love that. And then I think what I also love is this concept of a cookbook that's also meant to really bring people to these magical moments in your life through what you've done. And that's quite an amazing and ambitious thing to try to do in a cookbook. I hope I hope it comes off. I, I feel that it does. You know, we've done a lot of uh, cookbook dinners on the on the tour and we've done a lot of uh, cooking classes. And people people always always say that they're um, excited and surprised how delicious the food is and how simple it is. Um, and I, I think I think we're getting our point across. I'm 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 pretty happy with the way things turned out. To be totally frank. Well, I think that one of the dirty secrets when you go to people who are um, maybe people you admire because of what they do in the food world is oftentimes when they entertain, a you're very involved, so you're asked to do something, or they start off with the food in the kitchen. And also their dirty secret is they often just buy the best possible ingredients and give themselves the the least work to do. Is that is that kind of your philosophy as well? I mean, that's, to be perfectly honest, that's our, our philosophy from the get-go at all of our restaurants. It's you know, I'm a, it's almost cliche to say at this point, but I've been a, a farm-to-table chef since I started 35 years ago, and um, it, it's all about the ingredients. I mean, you know, we have a, 
a recipe in the book that is, uh, well, we have a chapter that's all about how to cook root vegetables in this very simple technique that I've developed over the years. And um, the, the demo that we've been doing is, is um, uh, oven roasted beets uh, with marinated kale and burrata. And, uh, you know, every time that I do that demo, um, it, it's not complicated, but I, I say, you know, you could just throw this whole recipe out and just slice up some burrata drizzle beautiful extra virgin olive oil on it and a little salt and pepper and forget it um, with some great crusty bread. <laughs> um, it, it's really delicious. So I think that speaks to the, the simplicity of the ingredients. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough. I, I, I always joke about it, but before I do an, uh, a party at my house, I, I go shopping in our walk-in coolers. So I'll go from restaurant to restaurant and sort of forage out the best products that are in the cooler. Um, uh, but, but, you know, for the home, the home cook in this day and age, uh, there's, you know, so much incredible product available, you know, whether it's from a CSA or whether it's from farmer's markets or, or even at, um, you know, Whole Foods and other grocery stores. The the level of uh, product, of organic product, <clears throat> is pretty incredible. And, you know, we in Chicago, we have an organic bakery. Um, our baker, Greg Wade, just won the James Beard Award this year for Best Baker in America. So obviously he's making really incredible bread. And we have a, um, a butcher shop that we source um, all Illinois products. Uh, from and distribute to our restaurants and distribute to people um, that come in to buy at the butcher shop. So, you know, and, and far beyond, there are other butcher shops and there are other bakeries and there's just tons of quality product out there. And that is 1000% our philosophy. The better the product, the less you have to do with it, the more delicious the food ends up being. Yeah, it's very much also in a, like kind of an Italian cooking philosophy in terms of Ita it, Italian as in Italy, in that when you go, you realize how their dishes are often amazing, but that they don't have a complex set of ingredients or techniques. They're often more about highlighting a, the freshest ingredient they could find. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would agree. And, you know, one of the other things that we um, do in the cookbook is, you know, at, at Avac uh, and most of our restaurants, um, we, we cook with a lot of acidity. You know, it's another one of the lessons that, that comes across in a lot of these classes we've been doing for the book tour. You know, um, I, I tell this story about how at our uh, one of our other restaurants, The Publican, we worked on this sort of riff on uh, Piri Piri chicken. Um, it was something that I had in Montreal, and we, we got 10 different chickens from 10 different farmers. We used different espalette pepper and different um, ingredients in the marinades, and then we, we grill it over a wood fire, uh, and finish it off in the oven. And we tasted them all, and they're all delicious in different ways, but we just feel like it's not perfect. It needs something. And um, Brian Houston, who was the original chef at that restaurant, said, let's just squeeze fresh lemon juice over it when it comes out of the oven. And it was an incredible eureka moment um, for me as a cook. It's like that's one, another one of those things like the burrata. You can read all this stuff in the cookbook, but just squeeze some lemon juice over it. It's going to taste a lot better. Um, and, and that's really incorporated into a lot of the cooking and in, in cooking for good times. Uh, we cook with a lot of vinegar. Uh, we cook with a lot of lemon juice and that acidity, um, really brightens up the flavor and, and I think makes food delicious. So simple ingredients, acidity, um, all, all go into making you a much more successful entertainer. Yeah, I mean, that's what I took away from it as much as it's it's almost like a guide to what I would say must come from you and the other chefs and that you work with, these unique flavor combinations. And they're not like crazy flavor combinations, but they're ones like the the root vegetable dish you just described is not, not one that I've done before. I don't usually combine cheese, actually, with root vegetables, at least as a aside. But would you say that was also, like to me, it's like kind of a guide to these different flavor principles as much as anything else. 
Yeah, I mean, our, our, our feeling was that uh, I think there's 15 chapters in the book, and about 10 of them uh, center around a, a tried-and-true technique that we've developed over the years uh, at, at AVEC. So uh, you're talking about root vegetables, and it's really interchangeable. Interchangeable. It's not like you have to use beets for this. You have to use sweet potatoes or turnips or rutabaga or carrot. Uh, it's really what you can get at the market or what you can get at your grocery that's that's really good, and then it's it's how to treat it and how to... Uh, decide for yourself whether you want to peel it or not. You know, is the skin tender? Um, is it going to taste good or, or is it like shoe leather? Uh, and, and then from there, it's it's how you pan roast those uh, root vegetables. And one of the things that we do is we, we add acidity and we add a little bit of sugar or honey to really, I, I find that 99.9% um, .9 of the root vegetables that I cook have a little bitter edge to it. Some more than others, like rutabagas have this really, really bitter edge. And so by um, adding them to a hot pan, you know, when the pores open up, uh, seasoning it with salt and pepper, um, and then before it goes in the oven, uh, adding some sugar to it uh, and moving it around a bit, I, I find that um, you, you really sort of balance that, that bitterness and it, it creates its own natural acidity. And then we compound that when it comes out of the oven by squeezing uh, either lemon juice or fresh orange juice on it. Uh, and I think that further develops the flavor. So it takes something that honestly people are like, yuck, root vegetables, uh, maybe that's because of the bitterness. Maybe it's because of the earthiness. Uh, and, you know, the reason we did the chapter is because I've always been so excited when I cook root vegetables, when I taste them, uh, when you add that sugar and you add the salt and you add a little bit of acidity, it, it turns them into something really spectacular. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but, um, you know, each each of the 10 chapters, whether it be the way that I uh, have developed to roast a chicken, uh, the way that we braise pork shoulder in the oven, um, you know, tried and true technique of 16 years that we've done at AVEC, um, you know, and on and on and on, it focuses on those and then it's sort of uh, variations on that simple theme. And so you can practice those techniques over and over. You can make them at home for your family. You can make them for a party. Um, they're, they're all simple and all the recipes work, but each time you get a little better and you may find a combination that you really love or a nuance in the dish uh, that, that turns you into an even better cook. And so, um, you know, we recommend at the beginning of the book, to stick with things that you're comfortable with, that you've done before, that you know are delicious, instead of um, that pressure that comes with the experimentation. Is it going to work out? You know, we've all been through those stressful moments where um, we feel like, boy, why did I bite off more than I could chew? Um, it's it's honestly all about uh, having a good time in the long run and and uh, and being with people you love. Yeah, no, and and you just started to describe this, and you 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 did cover my question. I think um, I'm thinking about all all the ways that I've been inspired. That if you, as not as a non root vegetable lover, th that once you learn these preparations that do work, it really can transform your appreciation. I think that um, one other thing I wanted to talk about that that you just started to talk about, but we could dig a little deeper is yours is a, another in a, a series of um, this season's best new cookbooks that we featured and a lot of whom ha are presented in ways that are would be considered non-traditional for a cookbook they're not organized by course or by type of food and i'm starting to wonder like is this is this you know obviously it, it's more than one book that's been approached this way and do you think this is kind of a par paradigm shift in how chefs and cookbook authors are trying to communicate to hungry audiences how to how to think about approaching cooking and their cooking at home really differently yeah i i, I would say you know i'm i'm uh i'm a rule breaker and you know we opened that restaurant uh, of x 16 years ago and 
Uh, we kind of group food together that makes sense together. And of course, everyone's opinion of what makes sense together is different, but we, we leave it up to our service team. You know, and they'll always say to the table, hey, I'm, I'm going to send this out to you in this order. Is this okay? And people just kind of put their meal in their hands. And, you know, that's the way that I've really uh, started to entertain, you know, 16 years ago and have sort of carried it on the whole time. Um, I mean, I think there's a, a, a time and a place for both types of experience, you know, at our restaurant next door, Blackbird, you know, Michelin starred restaurant, things are definitely um, uh, much more curated and much more coarse. Um, and, and, you know, wine, wine is a big part of that. Um, for me, honestly, again, at this point in my life, you know, I'm, I'm getting up near this, the big six zero. Um, I just don't take it that seriously. I just want to have fun. And uh, so if, if I have five or six dishes that I'm doing for a party, um, it's sort of, I mean, I, I, in my mind, I group things as, you know, cold things obviously come first, uh, with the exception of dessert. Um, I, I, I like to eat uh, vegetables usually before I eat seafood or meat, uh, but it's it's okay to eat vegetables with seafood or meat. And so it's kind of however it's convenient to group them that, that makes sense uh, from a flavor standpoint and from a simplicity standpoint, um, that, that's how I do it. And so has that become a trend in restaurants? I, I, I really think it has. I think it's uh, I think some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people are indifferent. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a bunch of our restaurants, you know, the publican, uh, we sort of cook food as the, as the kitchen can put it together and it comes out to the table. Um, and, and, and I wouldn't say a random fashion, but a, a, a less calculated fashion. And, you know, that restaurant as well, the publican is, is really loved by a lot of people. It's been, it's been busy for 10 or 11 years. And so, I think that speaks to the the fact that people are are okay with uh, eating in a more casual um, fashion. You know, it's not a fast casual restaurant in any way, shape, or form. The the food requires uh, a lot a lot of uh, preparation. We use great ingredients. Um, so, yeah, I, I I think it. I definitely do think it is a trend. I think uh, it it may even be a, a trend that's slightly on the way out. I I, I don't know, but uh, for me. It's 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 uh it's just free and easy, you know, and, and and I prefer to eat that way, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I th- I think there there's a whole movement to try to get people away from sort of dependence on recipes and to understanding cooking from a more intuitive point of view. And there's like a million different approaches to do that. Unfortunately, there's not one magic you know wand waving way to do it. But I think what you're talking about in, in the restaurants is people have gotten more used to that. And of course, there's choice. If you want a really formal restaurant, you can pick that if you're happy with the dishes. I was going to ask you, I think a huge amount when stuff is not coursed in the traditional way or it all comes from the kitchen when it's ready it has a lot to do with the service. You know about how the server prepares you for that and whether you have servers who are knowledgeable about, well, they've ordered this, it should come in this manner. Is is that something you advocate in, in your restaurants? Oh, you, you hit it on the head 100%. I mean, um, like I said, it kind of it kind of came from uh, a VEC uh, where where the servers know the menu and they know the wine and they know the, the feel of the restaurant and what makes people happy that they, they curate the experience for the diners. And I think people go in there and they just kind of turn – Turn their experience over to the server and let them and let them lead. You know, we have uh, newer restaurants where the service team is not um, uh, as seasoned in regard to that, and we try that and it's less successful. Uh, but but we know why and we know what we have to work on. So yeah, hundred percent um, service is a giant part of that. 
And so in those restaurants, then, is the order in which the food comes more chef-driven, or or, it's, or it starts out as server-driven, or it's kind of like a dance between the two? Uh, 100% a dance. I, I, I think uh, it's, a, it's a learning process, and uh, I mean, the menu, the menus really lend themselves to, oh, this, you know, raw fish obviously comes before a, a cooked whole fish, um, and they're, they're just simple uh, rules of the road that we follow. Um, but yeah, over time, uh, the teams get much better at it. The, the chef uh, or the sous chef or the cooks communicate with uh, the front of the house. And I, I think our restaurants are, we, we don't, uh, there's not an age old battle between the, the kitchen and the front of the house. We work uh, together as a team. And our, our ultimate goal is just to make people happy and make sure they have a great experience. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Chef uh, Chicago Chef Paul Kahn more about how he's created so many successful restaurants. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. We're talking to renowned Chicago chef Paul Kahn about his latest book, Cooking for Good Times, and about the merits of entertaining. So we were in the last half talking uh, about your restaurants and how they're organized and how you run them and and the changes sort of that you've made over time. So I know you have your restaurants really you take pride in the fact that they each have their own concepts and often very different style of food. But I was curious how you would describe what connects them. What what's what is most in common between Blackbird and Avac and Publican and now Pacific Standard Time? Uh, you know, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I I really think you know the the way we've developed the restaurants is is a little unique. Um, uh, I'm sure there are other groups that do it in a similar fashion, but. Uh, well, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, but we really do um, everything from a team approach. You know, I have uh, business partners, my my longtime business partner, Donnie Medea, and I started out 23 years ago, um, 24 years ago before Blackbird opened. Um, we, we the, the same architect, uh, Thomas Schlesher, um, whose company is called Design Bureau in New York City, 
uh, started with us in Chicago, and he's designed uh, all but one of our restaurants. And on and on and on, uh, Jason Pickleman, our graphic designer, and we, we start with an idea, and then we really work on that idea as a, as a team um, with the, the young man or woman that's going to be the chef's cuisine at this point in time. And, and we ideate, and we, uh, we, we, we go through every single detail, and we strive to come up with something uh, that's great. Um, but that being said, the DNA is the same. You know, my uh, sensibilities about food, my partner's sensibilities about design, uh, Jason's graphic design sensibility, Thomas's architecture and design sensibility. And so that, that's definitely one common thread. I think we, uh, we like modern, we like clean, we like simple, we like um, unique. Um, I think we were inspired from, you know, traveling, from dining in other cities, from uh, great food cultures around the world. And we always sort of synthesize those into our, our own program. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I, I think the other is, um, you know, the culinary philosophy of, of all of our restaurants um, stems from uh, myself uh, and the DNA that we planted at, at Blackbird back in the early days. And it's, uh, it, it's the, and, and I, I hope it doesn't sound cliche, but it's the less is more philosophy. Um, it's, you know, the Alice Waters philosophy that you can get the perfect peach and put it on a plate with a knife stuck in it. And it's going to be something that when somebody slices a piece off and it oozes with juice and it's perfectly ripe and delicious, um, that's about as great of a, of a dining experience as you can have. And so we're not trying to impress with our culinary prowess. We're trying to just feed people really, really delicious food. And so I think we strip away a lot of pretense. You know, that being said, we obviously want to do things that are unique and different and be creative. But I'm pretty sure that we don't go too far with that with that quest. And so I think, you know, from Big Star, our you know, crazy honky-tonk taqueria uh, where we get fresh masa in from a masseria every day and make every tortilla by hand. You know, all the meats and, uh, and proteins come from uh, incredible sources. Uh, and we, we may serve 10,000 tacos on a Saturday in the summer when the patio is open. But I think the same um, idea of, you know, cooking with acidity and cooking with flavor and great product is what drives that restaurant. So there, there's a ton of threads between uh, Blackbird and Big Star. Um, and yeah, that, I think that, I think that hits it. Yeah. And you meant, you mentioned the masa for your, for your, uh, taqueria, which is, which is pretty far away from the kind of food you do at, at Blackbird in terms of like type of food. So I, I did want to ask you about sourcing because I know in that Alice Waters tradition that you, I don't know if it's subscribed to or follow or, or kinship with but Both. talk yeah. to me more about what you've developed in terms of sourcing because right that's a foundation of all your restaurants yeah i mean from the the early days of the organic market in chicago um you know to uh continuing on you know with our butcher shop and with our bakery like for example our our baker greg wade um formed a relationship many years even before he started working um for our company he formed a relationship with a um a farmer named named Marty, um, who, who grows uh, a lot of varieties of wheat and then mills that wheat into flour. Uh, Marty also um, is involved with, uh, Marty Travis is involved with a, a group of uh, farmers um, in his area. And, you know, Marty will say, hey, this neighbor of mine has some incredible beef. Um, do you, you want to try it? And we'll, we'll get a, a side of beef into our butcher shop and process it and work with it. And if we love it, we'll continue with that. And so it's sort of 
uh, making connections with people that we've uh, established early relationships with. And I think we're, we're also fortunate enough in this day and age that we, um, pe- people come to us, you know, they're like, wow, I love your butcher shop. I know that you buy from Kilgus farm and you buy from uh, this farm and the other farm and they, they continually bring us product. Um, you know, we, we have a, a, a gentleman that we buy uh, cows and pigs from and he raises, I think he raises 15, his name is Roger Marcotte. I think he raises, raises 15 cows a year and we get 14 and the other one goes to, to, to the 4-H show. So, um, you know, just great relationships with great people. Um, we, uh, you know, from the very onset of our company, we decided that the, the farmers were as it's, it's actually something that I learned from working with Rick Bayless. Uh, the farmers are uh, as important as any other part of our business. And we want to, number one, always pay them first and, and treat them, treat them like the, I think royalty is maybe sounds pretentious, but treat them like the, the hardworking um, people they are that, that help make us successful. And so uh, we feed our farmers. We, uh, we, 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 uh, they're, they're, they're great people. And, um, I just think we've cultivated those relationships for, you know, almost 25 years now um, with our restaurant group. And it's, it's, again, it's really what, what has made us successful. Do, do you think in doing that, you also end up with the farmers, you, you kind of mentioned this in a different way, but the farmers are bringing you ideas that you can then incorporate too, because of that sort of full circle kind of relationship? Yeah, 100%. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, that, that goes goes without saying. If you if you bring me something new, we're gonna we're gonna try it, and if it's great, we 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 want it. Um, so yeah, that's that's one hundred percent correct. And I, I think the other thing that that that, that need be mentioned is, um, you know, one of the it, it reminds me of a, a sourcing story. You know, we, um, you know, the the way that uh, that restaurants buy oysters has vastly changed over the years. You know, there's a lot of um, oysters that are directly shipped via FedEx or or whatever. Um, directly to restaurants, and it was uh, started uh, by this guy named Skip Bennett, who has an oyster company called Island Creek Oysters in Duxbury, Mass. And he, the first call that he ever made was to Eric Repair, and uh, sure enough, he got Eric Repair in the kitchen and said, "Hey, I want to send you some oysters." And Eric said, "Sure." And, and from that day on, the way that uh, chefs get fresh oysters has really evolved. You know, so um, you know, fast forward you know, 15 or 18 years, I was at an event in in uh, in um, Florida, and I met the team from Island Creek Oysters, and the chefs within our company had been buying uh, oysters from them directly for many years. And they're like, "Man, we we love you. We we love your company. Everyone is so nice. They're so respectful." Um, and 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 that, you know, with that, they said, "We'd do anything for you." And that night, I went back to my motel room, and I was lying there thinking, you know, over and over in my mind, anything they'd do, anything for me. And so the next day. Uh, we went back and we said, hey, would you guys plant a proprietary oyster for our restaurant, The Publican? And they said, man, we got to check with Skip, but that's a great idea. And uh, years later, we buy, uh, the name has changed from The Publican to The Tumblican uh, because they're um, raising these uh, traps out in the water that bounce around and tumble and uh, develop a little bit of a deeper cup and, and, um, and change the texture and flavor of the oyster a little bit. But that being said, that little snippet about how we treat people well with a lot of respect um, really paid off. And I think the, you know, the, the bones of the restaurant industry have changed so much, you know, it has been this, you know, there's uh, all, all the issues that have come to life over the years are things that we always shied away from. You know, we treat uh, people with respect. Uh, everyone is welcome. Um, and it, it's really, you know, that philosophy has really 
paid off. We just try to be nice people. That's a great story. So I wanted to ask you about um, kind of pivoting toward like people. You have you know a number of different concept restaurants that all have different um, head chefs, I assume. So how do you how do you string all that together, working with so many different chefs and so many different styles of restaurants, or is your philosophy you just hire good people and you let them run? Well, I mean, a lot of it is uh, the, there are there are very few people that have not been developed from within our our system. You know, started as a cook. You know, um, Brian Pfeiffer, who's the uh, actually I promoted we promoted him to executive chef of Blackbird. He's the first executive chef in the company besides myself. Uh, because he deserved that title, because he runs that restaurant as if it were his own. Um, he started as a as a lunch cook at Blackbird, and years later, um, you know, working at his craft and uh, working at the way he uh, develops his own team, um, was promoted to executive chef. So I think first and foremost, um, it's it's developing talent from within. You know, people understand our our philosophy and they and they they embrace it uh, and stay with us for a long time. Um, I think that's number one. I think number two is we have a really strong support team, you know, along the same lines as Ryan. Um, our culinary director's name is Kim Liali, and she, she also started as a cook at one of our restaurants um, and just has incredible culinary skills, incredible organizational skills, people skills, uh, loves to work hard, um, you know, lo- loves to be successful in the kitchen. Um, she, she, you know, bounces around from restaurant to restaurant as I do. Um, we kind of, uh, you know, when things are not, uh, perfect in our eyes or when we need to do menu changes or we need to sit down and ideate with the team. We, we both do that and we share that responsibility pretty equally. Um, so, and, and that, that team is growing, you know, we're adding uh, culinary leadership to that team. And so, um, you know, but, but, but first and foremost, uh, I think all the general managers and chefs um, having a, a real proprietary sense is something that we try to instill in them. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the better they do, uh, the more money they make, you know, um, in regards to, like, our, our bonus program. And that really drives, um, I mean, first and foremost, they want to be the, the, the best uh, in the business um, for, for their restaurant. They want to make people happy. Um, and then beyond that, um, that, that proprietary sense, really, they, they really embrace um, the restaurants as if they were own. And so I think all those things combine some good leadership from our end. Um, I think uh, hiring good people, developing good people, uh, and really everyone understanding our, our philosophy of, uh, of hospitality is pretty much key to the, the equation. Does that make sense? Well, I think that's really helpful. Everyone's always looking for the secret of how you run one restaurant successfully, let, let alone a dozen. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, there are no secrets. Believe me, it's a lot of hard work. Well, but I think you're describing both a philosophy and just as the book represents this idea that you're all in it together and you're, you're, you're a work family and that, that that's part of the, the, the ethos. It's more than just, you know, get this food and make sure the client pays. Yeah, I, I would agree. So let's pivot back to entertaining before we run out of time. I, I can't have, you know the chef of a dozen great restaurants who's just produced this great book on entertaining, not tell us how he's entertaining for Thanksgiving, or are you hanging up your apron and just going to someone else's this year? No, we're having Thanksgiving at our house. Um, and it's, it's a potluck, you know, everyone, everyone brings something, uh, I, you know, Thanksgiving's about this incredible feast laid out uh, in front of you. Um, but uh, I'm going to, I'm excited uh, from our butcher shop. We get incredible turkeys from a couple different farmers 
And so I'm going to do two different turkeys. I'm going to roast one in the oven, um, really very similar to the way that we do the, the roast chicken in the Cooking for Good Times book. And then the other one I'm going to cook out in my backyard on a rotisserie. And then I'm going to do three or four side dishes, actually a very similar Brussels sprout dish um, that, you know, that's in the cookbook and, and a couple other things. And then my sister uh, is going to bring, you know, some, um, some family specialties that my, you know, with a little bit of a Jewish bend to them, you know, my, my grandma um, always made a, a noodle, a noodle pudding, a noodle kugel. So my sister is going to bring that and she's going to bring um, a carrot ring, which is a, a savory uh, cake that my grandma developed this recipe for. It's uh, done in a ring mold. Um, you know, you, you, uh, you saute um, French beans and pile them up or French beans with almonds and you pile them up and you put them in the center. Um, so my sister has mastered that recipe over the years and, and all the, the cousins and everyone will, will bring something else and we'll set up a big spread of uh, stuff to snack on in the kitchen and turn the TV on upstairs for people to watch football. And, you know, if it's too cold, I actually have a wood burning stove in my garage and a, a refrigerator. So people will drink beer or a little bit of wine in the garage around the wood stove. And we'll sit down, you know, hopefully early in the afternoon for, a, for a nice feast. And uh, hopefully a couple hours after that, we'll have some turkey sandwiches and then we'll call it a night. That sounds very inviting and very <laughs> homey and very down to earth. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. So tell us, do you love to entertain? What are your top tips or hacks for this holiday season? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyaschildfoundation.org and let us know. After the break, Paul's going to reveal his Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Paul, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Wow. Well, to start, you know, as, as a kid, I, I, I watched her on TV so much, and she inspired me to uh, get in the kitchen and just experiment. You know, I was obsessed with making the perfect French omelet uh, as a as seven- or eight-year-old kid. Um, but really, my, my Julia moment was uh, when we opened our first restaurant, Blackbird. Um, we had been open a, a year um, when I won the Food & Wine Best New Chef Award. I think that was 1999. And um, right after that, I signed up with Allclad as a, a, a brand ambassador, the cookware company. And they, they wanted to do a dinner. They were releasing a new line of cookware from Emerald Lagasse. And they scheduled a dinner um, in our restaurant on both floors, um, which is quite a challenge uh, for Emerald and Julia Child. And they were both going to be the guests of honor. And, of course, we were terrified. We put together uh, what I thought was an incredible menu. It, it, was, it was a good menu, um, but put a lot of time in it and, and stressed about it a lot. And when Julia got to Blackbird, um, you know, the staircase uh, to go upstairs um, is a little treacherous and we, we have a freight elevator in the back. And so uh, we brought Julia in the back and she rode the freight elevator upstairs. And it was a, a good couple hours before the dinner started. And Julia and I sat on the banquette undisturbed for about an hour and 15 minutes. And she just told me stories, um, you know, going up the freight elevator, she said, I think she said she worked in a a shoe store in New York when she was younger, uh, and the elevator reminded her of that. And then we just talked about about food and cooking and passion, and it was uh, it was a 
such a privilege and, and such a unique moment. Uh, but I, I think really the, 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 the apex of the story was uh, at the end, you know, we, we had a brigade of cooks working. We brought in uh, cooks from outside our company. We were small at that point. We needed to outfit two full kitchens to feed two full floors, like a six or seven course meal. Uh, we had a brigade there, you know, 25, 27 cooks. And at the end, uh, after all the guests had left, Julia sat down in the dining room. She said, I want to meet all the cooks. And so all the cooks lined up and each cook came up to Julia and Julia said, what was your contribution for the meal tonight? And the cook would say, you know, I'm the pastry chef. I made this and this and this. And Julia would comment on that and give uh, each individual cook a little bit of wisdom. And to me, that was so unselfish and so incredible and just speaks to her incredible uh, passion, spoke to her incredible passion about food and um, really uh, set her in my mind as uh, just just the number one, you know, like who who would ever do that? Who would be so unselfish and spend that time um, with all these young cooks? And so that's my that's my Julia moment. Well, thank you for sharing that 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 that's a lovely story, and it sounds very Julia. And and I think it goes back to your theme that you know restaurants and the hospitality business is much about people and the people dining and the people cooking as it is just about the food. Yeah. A good Thanksgiving season message. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The book is Cooking for Good Times, Super Delicious, Super Simple, by Paul Kahn with Perry Hendricks and Rachel Holtzman with photographs by Pedna and Monk. It's out now from Lorena Jones Books, an imprint of 10 Speed Press. If you find yourself in Chicago or already live there, you have some tough choices. Go to oneoffhospitality.com and click on Our Concepts for an overview of Chef Paul Kahn's restaurants. For the inside track on Paul's world, it's at Paul Kahn on Twitter and Instagram, and Kahn is K-A-H-A-N. Did you miss all the excitement around the presentation of the fifth Julia Child Award to Chef Jose Andres at the Smithsonian Food History Weekend? Do not worry. There's plenty to see and listen to at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. There's pictures and videos from the big night there. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. You can find out more about the Julia Child Award and its recipients on juliachildaward.com. The new video that describes what the award is all about is on the homepage now. And if you want to watch Julia cooking omelets while doing math in her head, that clip is on juliachildfoundation.org forward slash videos. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novia Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.